Would you eat meat that's grown in a petri dish? Well, it may be coming sooner than you think. Welcome to Science Island. I'm Grant Birmingham. And I'm Leah Hitchings. You are literally going from plant to meat. You're not building the whole animal. You're not building bone. It just goes directly from cells that multiply every 24 to 48 hours. So you can grow enormous amounts of meat for a fraction of the time, money, cost, environmental impact. If guilt-free, environmentally friendly meat sounds pretty great, it might be. But there's a lot of hurdles it has to get over first. I'm talking to Ryan Bethencourt, who's a scientist and investor and is trying to put fake meat on the menu. This is KACRLP 96.1 FM, and you're listening to Science Island, a deep dive into the world of scientific innovation and discovery. Next up, biotech you can do in your garage, and when is that hamburger grown in a petri dish going to get here? On Science Island. Welcome to Science Island. Thanks for listening. So, Leah, do you ever feel guilty about eating meat? I do. Not as guilty as I feel about eating chocolate sometimes, but meat, (laughs) after reading Michael Pollan books, is definitely up there. How about you, Grant? I think if I was left to my own devices and I had a couple more hours in the day and I could cook all my meals, one of the first things I would do is stop eating meat. But um, I think it's almost impossible for me to do it right now because I'm too busy and meat tastes great and it's kind of a low priority. And and all of that combines to make me feel like sort of an awful person. (laughs) What are some of the ways that we make ourselves feel better about the food that we eat? We shop at maybe the local market versus the big chain. I think if you look at Whole Foods and Trader Joe's and even cage-free eggs, there's kind of a market out there for people who are willing to pay a little bit more to feel good about where their food comes from or maybe that they're making an environmental choice, um, which brings me to today's show. We're really excited to have Ryan Bethencourt on, who runs Indie Bio, which is accelerator for biotech companies. And one of his big investments right now is in fake meat. That is meat which is grown not on a cow, but in a lab. I guess I have a two-part question for you, Leah. One, would you eat that meat that's coming out of a Petri dish? And two, how much more would you be willing to pay for it? Sign me up for eating the Petri dish meat because at the end of the day, it's going to be cleaner. And I would think there would be fewer chemicals and uh, medications given to the animal that produced it. And I could feel good about not contributing to a factory system of farming. So I should say that there's one big caveat which comes with fake meat right now. Synthetic meat is how they like to to be called, by the way, not fake meat. And that is that they use something called fetal bovine serum in order to grow it, which has to come from baby cows. And when you stop to think about it in the process, it could actually have a higher... Uh, gross out level, shall we say, than the standard way of producing meat. But the argument being that it could help lead to a more sustainable supply chain of food for a booming global population. And at the end of the day, we really need to figure out a system 
that doesn't lend itself to mass factory farms that destroy our planet and don't necessarily make us any healthier in the process. So I should say another really interesting thing about Ryan is that he is a vegan. And he's actually a member of a bunch of investors here in Silicon Valley who call themselves the Vegan Mafia. And they're investing in companies which do fake leather, fake meat, fake chicken, fake beef, fake pork. And the other interesting side of that, he's never tried his own fake meat products. He's also really confident that they're going to come up with a fetal bovine serum alternative in the near future and that he will be able to try his products. But he's waiting until that day because he's he's a dedicated vegan. Which is so admirable. And PETA is among the groups that is looking into alternatives to FBS. They've come out with a list of cell culture alternatives, but it turns out that none of those alternatives so far is really scalable. And what the industry as a whole is really trying to do is scale to be able to produce at a lower cost um, something that people would be ethically interested in eating and also would love to actually enjoy and put in their mouths and think tastes just like meat. Ryan is sort of at an interesting intersection. When I came to California to cover technology for Newsweek, they really wanted me to cover Facebook and Twitter. And I really found that like covering your power company. It's just hard to get excited about. But one space I really found exciting out here was biotech. It's a space that more and more VC dollars are coming into. And it's a space that I think could really pop. It's an exciting time. So many tech companies that now employ so many people and do so many billions of dollars of business started in garages. And we're entering that space for biotech where they have these really great um, startup founders. They have people who are excited about what they're doing and they're starting it in a cheap way that uh, they hope can scale to a global level. So I'm really excited to have Ryan Bethencourt on from IndieBio, which is what? Uh, IndieBio is the world's largest biotech accelerator. Uh, but much more than that, we actually help turn scientists into entrepreneurs. So we funded 68 biotech companies so far uh, at the end of uh, 2017. Uh, and right now it looks like we are the largest funder of early stage biotech across the board. And so for people who don't know, the finances of this is sort of similar to like what Y Combinator does. Right. You're going to take in as many companies <clears throat> as you can, yep. uh, help them get some tools, and then what percentage end up succeeding or what percentage... <clears throat> I realize it's like so, asking which one of your children is going to succeed. Yeah, but. which 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 children's the most beautiful or the most talented. So so uh, you know the, the, we try not to make judgments uh, on that because uh, we think that that an outcome it's never clear what an outcome is going to be. And what's been interesting is over the last I would say three years that IndieBio has been in existence, um, it's really hard to predict, right? So you may think that there's a team that's just incredible, they raise all the money, uh, they have incredible technology. And then they stall out or they, they have challenges where there are some teams that are like, I have no idea how this company is going to succeed. And slowly but surely, they grind their way through and they start to create incredible businesses. And so so we try not to make assumptions. Assumptions are dangerous. Um, but uh, our aim is really to accelerate the whole space. We hope to have some amazing winners. It's looking that way. So uh, in terms of, of having like breakthrough companies. One which has been in the news a lot recently is Memphis Meats. They're really the, 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 the first lab-grown uh, cultured meat company in the world. 
I think now people shouldn't use the term clean meat. Uh, but but that's just one of many areas. We're, we're innovating in food, biomaterials, therapeutics, uh, regenerative medicine. So literally regrowing organs. Uh, these are all things that are that are real. And we focus on show me, don't tell me. So uh, rather than saying one day we will, uh, actually show someone. Like what, today we have done this. Um, and so that's that's how we drive uh, businesses and really turn turn them into real things. So what I think is super interesting about the biotech space and why I think it's it's probably going to be the next big thing mm -hmm. is costs are coming down so rapidly. And it's similar to what happened with computing like 10 years ago in terms yes. of what people could do at their house. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so costs are coming down dramatically. Uh, we have new tools and technologies like CRISPR. Uh, interesting enough, machine learning is playing a huge part in the next biotech revolution. Uh, it, you still need wet biology. You can't, you can't remove the wet biology, the lab component out of doing biotech. Uh, but what you can do is you can speed it up with machine learning and with robotics. And so that's what we're seeing in the lab. You know, we've, we've funded uh, multiple companies that have really unique approaches at doing this. So one of them is Scaled Biolabs. Scaled Biolabs, uh, it's actually a collaboration between a molecular biologist and an astrophysicist. Uh, what they do is they use the technologies and the algorithms that he used to look up into the stars and to track the stars and to analyze the stars to actually look down into a microscope and track cells, right? And so what they're doing is they've been able to, to create a technology which is uh, based on a microfluidics chip where they can test 10,000 different experiments on one chip, one relatively small chip. And so they've been able to differentiate uh, what's called kidney organoids. It was on the front cover of Nature a couple of years ago. Uh, to actually make a, a small uh, semi-functional kidney. Uh, they, they're currently making neurons to try and treat Parkinson's disease because they can run 10,000 experiments at a time. They can say, what conditions do we need to turn a stem cell into a kidney cell or into a neuron or into a dendritic cell or into an immune cell? And so, so they're able to do it just much, much faster. They use a combination of um, optical microscopy, molecular biology, and uh, machine learning to figure that out. So biotech has this boom and bust reputation in the Valley. And I remember you telling me this story, 2000, biotech kind of blows up in the Valley. All these companies start going out of business. Yeah, so, so around, around 2000, which was the Great Recession, uh, tech got totally disrupted and we went through a downturn. You know, not quite a depression, but some people say pretty close to depression. Uh, what ended up happening was, not only were the tech companies struggling, which was what was what was reported in the media, but biotech uh, was devastated. So there were articles basically saying this is the end of the biotech industry. And so myself and, and a bunch of my friends uh, and, and also some people I didn't know at the time um, started buying used lab equipment for pennies on the dollar. And we started to build little labs in our, in our rooms, in our living rooms, in our garages uh, to try and do science. So our main aim was, well, if the price of everything is dropping and we can buy it for pennies on the dollar, why don't we just start doing science at home? And that's what we started to do. And that, that at first, we kind of called that community science. Uh, that led to really what's now called the biohacker movement. Uh, and that was really, I would say, initiated in Silicon Valley. There was a concurrent movement in uh, New York City. Um, but there was, there was a real momentum in Silicon Valley behind it as well. Uh, and so, so um, that led to the starting of several biohacker spaces. Uh, Biocurious was the first, GenSpace. I think arguably was opened around the same time. Uh, and then I co-founded Counterculture Labs with uh, several other people. Uh, and then eventually Berkeley Biolabs, which was a, a for-profit space, uh, which led to the idea 
of uh, IndieBio, which was actually a collaboration between myself, uh, Ron Shigeta, my co-founder for Berkeley Biolabs and IndieBio, and then Arvind Gupta as well, uh, the, the partner at SOS Ventures. And at one point, your friend had built this, this lab in a, in a garage, and it got written up by Wired. Yeah, so, so that's really what made me realize there was actually some commercial potential uh, in the biohacker movement. I always treated it kind of as a, like a hobby, uh, and I worked, my day job was in the uh, helping big drug companies develop therapeutic drugs. My hobby was tinkering with my friends in, in garages and building, building science-based stuff. Uh, and, and his lab, uh, John Schlorendorn's lab, uh, he actually has a company now called Gene and Cell Technologies that, that sell like reagents for regenerative medicine. Um, he, his, his lab, uh, he built a lab in his garage in Mountain View. And he was super paranoid that he get shut down, uh, so he didn't want anyone to know where it was. And someone because of from, like the FDA jumping yeah, in, or something. yeah, someone would regulate. It. He was like, I don't trust the government. Uh, the government will find some way to shut me down. Uh, I just want to do science. <laughs> that was it. So, so, um, so, so, someone from Wired found out about it. Uh, they took a picture of it, wrote an article about a secret lab, biotech lab in Silicon Valley, and then all of a sudden everything went crazy, right? It, it kind of, people suddenly started to think about the homebrew club, about how Hewlett Packard was started, how Apple was started. Uh, and, and there was a bunch of press around it. Uh, one day my friend was sitting there. Uh, one day John was sitting there uh, just doing some, some science in his, in his garage, right? <laughs> and there was a knock on the door. And, and this guy, this disheveled guy turned up in a, apparently a beaten up old car. Uh, and it turned out that disheveled guy was actually a billionaire. That was Peter Thiel. Uh, and he was like, who are you? And he's like, oh, I'm Peter Thiel. And my friend was a scientist. So he's like, I don't know who you are. <laughs> it's like, it's like, well, I'm Peter Thiel. <laughs> he's like, I don't know who that is. <laughs> so, to, you know, there's like, apparently they, they had hour, hours of conversation and the end Peter was like, look, I really want to fund you. Uh, here's a check for half a million dollars. Can you build a biotech? And so that's started my friend John off on, on his quest to build biotech. Uh, when John told me about this, I was like, one, that's an insane story. Uh, two, I was like, this is real, right? The moment that many of us had been hoping we'd see, which which was, you know, all these tech entrepreneurs were able to build companies for, you know, thousands of dollars. Uh, whereas in biotech, people had told us the story that it was impossible. You need millions of dollars, plus you're too young, right? Unless you have a bunch of gray hairs, you're not ever going to raise money or ever be able to build a biotech company. All of a sudden, the paradigm had shifted, right? And so now we might dream of one day building biotechs just like the tech entrepreneurs. Uh, and, you know, fast forward to today, we are, right? So are we at the point Apple started in a garage, Microsoft started in a garage? And you know, are we at the point where there are legit biotech companies starting in people's garages? So I would say yes and no, right? So uh, it's a little bit more of a nuanced answer. So I have learned some things along the way, uh, I guess the... I guess it's, uh, that was in tw uh, 2008, right? Uh, so about 10 years later, about a decade later, I've learned a couple of things. One of those things is that you, you can have the hustler that can have any kind of background, right? They can be a biohacker. They can be uh, a business person, a, a bachelor's in philosophy. It doesn't really matter. They have to just be visionary and really see something that others don't. Um, and they have to be willing to work incredibly hard to make it real. Um, on the scientist end, I think that's much harder. And so I think just in the same way that, you know, carpenters, there are different types of carpenters. You know, you can either be a DIY, do-it-yourself person that, that, that works on the weekends and knocks together a few tables, or you can be a master craftsman 
that makes incredible works of art. And so I think PhD uh, and postdoc scientists are really what you need to build the science part of, of those companies. There are exceptions. We are here. We're at the stage where we can build uh, relatively inexpensive biotechs. And when I say relatively inexpensive, I mean tens of thousands of dollars to get started. So you're also a member of the vegan mafia? I am. Yeah, that was the most recent uh, <laughs> CNBC article. I think people found that really funny. <laughs> so, All right, so walk us through the, the vegan yeah, mafia. Yeah, so the vegan mafia. So so I'm also vegan. Um, and uh, one of the things that when we started IndieBio, we had this theory, right? And the theory was, well, actually, there are probably a lot of people around the world that care about environmental issues. They care about um, reducing factory farming, the ethical aspects, uh, improving people's health, like humanity's health. Uh, they will probably emerge, if we become a lightning rod for um, innovative companies that remove animals from the food system, that make healthier foods, uh, that reduce environmental impact, they'll emerge. They'll back us too. And it was kind of a leap of faith. Um, they did start emerging. So uh, Clara Foods was one of the first companies we funded. They brew egg whites. So uh, they, they, they have uh, engineered yeast that uh, you brew and make egg white proteins. Identical egg white proteins, they are egg whites. Uh, and so uh, we had a few really passionate people. Some of them were vegans. Some of them were environmentalists. Uh, some of them just wanted to feed humanity. Uh, and they all kind of got together to back uh, Clara Foods. And so that, that made it clear that there was actually a really big population of people who put their money where their mouth was. Um, and over the last couple of years, uh, more and more have emerged, and many of them have reached out to us and said, hey, how can we help? How can we help? How can we help? We're really passionate about this space. Um, and so so it, it, it first started as a kind of a, like a running joke. It's like, oh, the vegan mafia. But now it's very real. Like now there are dozens of people who are willing to back with their time and their money the building of new companies that transform our world for the better. When you look at world problems, global warming, uh, lack of resources to feed everybody, all these things are sort of wrapped up in our, our consumption of meat and our usage of animals. Like, for instance, Memphis Meat, which I know you guys uh, ran through your accelerator, they are growing meat cell by cell in a lab. Um, talk about the reduction in resources that that, that, that method has. So, so it's massive, right? So um, it, it's, almost, it's almost hard to overstate it. So we're looking at about a 95% reduction in overall resources. So everything from reduction in water use, reduction in land use, uh, and then reduction actually even in, in crop use. So the, converting those calories into meat is just far more efficient. You, you are literally going from plant to, uh, or sugar to, uh, to, to, to meat. Right, and you're not building the whole animal. You're not building bones. You're not building waste heat energy. You're not growing an animal. It just goes directly from you know uh, cells that multiply every 24 to 48 hours. So you can grow enormous amounts of meat uh, for a fraction of the time, money, cost, environmental impact, uh, and of course a massive reduction in CO2 as well. So you're, the first meatball that came out of this cost? It cost, I think it was like $3,000 or something. $3,000. So how, how close are we to being able to buy this at Whole Foods? Much closer. So, uh, so, so Memphis Meats aren't releasing the exact amount, uh, and I don't know if I can really say it, but uh, it's come down orders of magnitude from that $3,000 uh, meatball. Um, we're probably, realistically, we're looking at, uh, you know, three 
plus years before we see this on the on the market proper i think we're going to start seeing in the same way that impossible foods rolled out its burgers we're probably going to see a slow rollout of a couple of restaurants serving these burgers and these sausages and these meatballs and these uh the chicken tenders and the duck larranges uh, all of these have been grown and actually finless foods which is one of our newest companies also is making bluefin tuna uh, and so really transforming not just land-based mammal agriculture but then also really trying to protect our oceans and the remaining uh, animals that are actually still in the ocean, you know, the fish that are still in the ocean, uh, by just removing our use of them. Uh, and so, so we're already starting to see samples rolling out. Um, and I think that, uh, there are a few people who are, who are, who are kind of making some, uh, pretty outsized claims around when they can bring, uh, uh, clean meat to market. Uh, but I think realistically, we're going to see it for mass consumption within about three years. Wow. Um, so you're a vegan. How many of these meat products have you eaten? I've actually eaten zero of the meat products because I'm so <laughs> even even the grown ones even the grown ones. So I have I have a it's it's a personal thing, right? So I really I'm a pretty strict vegan. I'm an ethical vegan. I'm an environmental vegan. I'm a health vegan. I'm all of the above. Uh, and so uh, for me, I actually am kind of a purist, and I want I want it to be a hundred percent vegan. And so right now, one of the one of the challenges and the things that are actually being engineered out is the use of fetal bovine growth serum. So Right now, to grow the cells, and in any lab, in any place that you go to in the world, uh, we use FBS. Uh, and FBS is a product of animals. Um, and it's uh, it's exactly as you'd expect. I mean, it's not a, a pretty product, but it's one that we kind of need to grow these cells. Um, uh, Memphis Meats is very clearly probably one of the leaders in, in making these products truly vegan, uh, truly animal-free in terms of the fetal bovine growth serum. Uh, but I'm waiting for that moment. And so Uma knows the first, you know, the first bite of that um, – I'm hoping to be one of those people having that first bite. So is that on the horizon? Because it, that's been one of the criticisms of, yes. of meat so far. M- most definitely. There's like this secret backdoor into the meat industry that's creating this this fake meat. For, most definitely. Yeah. So so right now, um, it, and it's not just Memphis Meats. I mean, it's you know the, there, there are a couple of companies. So there's Memphis Meats. There's Finless Foods, which is another company we backed. There's Mosa Meats, which was actually Mark Post. He was the, the scientist that made the first lab-grown hamburger in, in academia. Uh, but now he's spun off a, co- a company. There's, there's a whole bunch of competition. Uh, I've actually recently... Uh, been talking to Rosie Bosworth, who's who's a, a journalist who covers a lot of the food innovation in New Zealand, and she uh, she's covering it heavily because uh, New Zealand relies predominantly on agriculture, and they realize that change is afoot, and they really want to retool their entire economy to really embrace new ag, uh, as some people are calling it. So it kind of breaks down a lot of categories. Like obviously, you're not on board because you're a full vegan. But I also covered this shrimp company that you yep. had, and yep. their first client yep. was uh, Google, and then the uh, oh, Laheim Laheim shrimp. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Laheim. Yeah, one of, one of my one of my favorite sushi sushi places for sure. So Laheim. Uh, yeah. So so Alex, the uh, the CEO, he is both a rabbi and uh, an entrepreneur. Uh, he actually started Laheim Sushi because he wanted to bring together uh, bring people together through food. Right, and so we should say, very observant Jews yes. don't eat shellfish, yes. which includes shrimp. Yes, and you have the synthetic shrimp, and suddenly, it's a brand new market. It's a brand new market. Yeah, we we actually had uh, when we when we first funded uh, New Wave and a bunch of these cultured meat companies as well. Uh, we had five rabbis that came in and debated whether things were you know kosher or not. Right? So, so it turns out it's actually a very complicated discussion because when you don't have a uh, what is it a a ho- hoof scale scalar hoof right. that's it that's that's it so scalar hoof 
how do you know whether it's kosher or not? These these products don't have scalar hoof. So uh, it's more a more nuanced discussion. I think it's still an ongoing discussion, but it turns out New Age uh, Pop Shrimp, which, by the way, is delicious. I've had it 100% vegan, 100% kosher. Uh, uh, I love it. Um, is uh, Geltor, which brews gelatin, uh, all types of gelatin, appears to be because it never actually comes from the animal. And right now there's a bit of controversy because there's the, the origins of the cells for a lot of the lab-grown meats may, may not be kosher, especially if it's pork, because it still ultimately comes from a pig. Um, but, but the, you know, the discussions are ongoing. Give me what uh, biotech looks like in five years and give me what biotech looks like in 10 years. So, so in five years. Um, so in five years, five years will be enough time for many of these products to get to the market. Uh, and so when I say many of these products, so I'm talking about the food products, I'm talking about new biomaterials. So uh, lab, lab-grown meat, cultured meat, clean meat, multiple different names will be here. People will be eating it. Uh, it may not quite be a McDonald's or Burger King, but it's going to start getting real close. M- might be in an in and out near you. Uh, and so, you know, we're going to be eating. Uh, we're going to be actually reducing the pollution, the water use. We're going to be transforming our agricultural systems. We're going to have uh, actually essentially uh, vertical or hydroponic farms almost everywhere. They'll have spread. There's a company called Plenty, which I'm super impressed with. They grow. Uh, they grow. Um, uh, agricultural products pretty much anywhere near an urban city. Uh, I think they raised $250 million recently. Uh, massive, and I've, the CEO is really visionary. He has entirely new ways and, and new views on on how we need to change the food system to feed the next billion or two billion people. Um, we're going to be seeing new innovations in biomaterials. So uh, recently, uh, Bolt Threads, another company that, that I love a lot, not an indie bio company, but I still love them a lot, um, which brews spider silk. Spider silk has incredible properties. It is, depending on who you ask, anywhere between three to 10 times stronger than steel per weight. Uh, And so it has incredible properties and it's an entirely new biomaterial that we're gonna start using for clothing, but probably for other things too. Uh, It turns out that you can actually make solid structures out of spider silk, which is interesting. I don't think anyone's ever done that. And so we're gonna start seeing like, and these technologies, they are technologies, biology is a technology will enable entirely new products, uh, which we have yet to see and imagine. Um, And then of course, on the therapeutics, regenerative medicine front, uh, we're seeing a transformation in how we treat cancer already happening. We're learning how to program our own immune systems or reprogram them to see cancers, to treat cancers, to kill cancers. We're understanding the biology of cancers, which is incredibly complex. and then we're moving into a new era in medicine, I believe, which is going to be regenerative medicine. So a couple of the companies we funded in IndieBio, uh, including Prelis, which is a 3D bioprinting company, uh, and Bioaesthetics, which uh, regrows women's nipples post-mastectomy, post-cancer, um, are going to transform medicine as we know it. So today, why do we die? Uh, often about 50% of the reason is our organs fail in some way. Uh, when, when you're elderly, a parent gets pneumonia in the hospital uh, and dies. Uh, as a result of that, if we could only swap out their lungs when they were fluid-filled and bacterial-filled with new clean lungs, that would make a huge difference. Uh, and so so I think that within the next five years, we're going to start to see the beginnings of that. Within the next 10 years, we will see medicine transformed as well. I can't thank you enough. It's always great having, having you over, Grant, and love your, uh, your visionary zeal for what comes next. So that's it for our very first episode ever of Science Island. Thank you for listening here at KACR LP 96.1. 
You can hear us again next week at the same time. We are online at Sci Island at Twitter, so check us out. And we're going to be launching a podcast soon, so hopefully you guys can get on board with that. Uh, this show is hosted and produced by myself, Grant Birmingham, and Leah Hitchens. Our music is played by Brent Amaker and The Rodeo. And I want to thank our guest one more time, Ryan Bethencourt of the Indie Bio. See you guys next week. <laughs>